Chapter 11. Shooting. Day 6. Look, I was, it was a particularly bad day. We all arrived in Malden and met Jeff's friend Keith for the first time, the resident of our apartment set. He was an incredibly laid-back musician. He walked around the set in PJs with a ukulele, picking at it between takes. At one point, he shared a little song with us, which I still regret not getting on camera. I drunkenly punched me mother, I drunkenly punched me mum, I drunkenly punched me mother, on the merry-go-round. The first thing we completed was Carrie's last scene in the film, in which she hangs out with Mark before flying to L.A., but Mark gets sloppy drunk and ruins the night. This included orchestrating the spillage of booze on the ground and knocking down a bunch of purple LED lights, both of which were a little difficult to get right. Fortunately, Keith didn't care what we did to his apartment. What's more, we didn't have to dress it much. It kind of looked perfect for Mark's apartment, not just the style, but the instruments, records, and more. Hannah, a trooper, headed back into work after we wrapped her. We texted occasionally throughout the 14 hours of shooting, and after a while, our time together that morning felt so distant. Though controlled, day six quickly proved to be our most exhausting, not logistically, but creatively. The apartment scenes tended to contain quiet visual scenes, or montages, or pieces of montages, or one-sided phone conversations, or just plot glue. Sounds straightforward, but we struggled to invent creative and new ways to shoot each segment, and not just flat medium shots. More than any other day, we found it difficult to keep things moving. People fell asleep in piles outside whatever room we were shooting in, and Kyle and I weren't in any direct conflict, but we were decidedly testy with one another. And aside from Jeff Torelli. Kyle and Frankie were both very aware that I had written a rather talky piece of screenwriting, and while there were definitely some visual set pieces, there were also a number of generic visual descriptions. They worked hard and worked smart, and turned things that would have been bland into interesting shots and ideas. It's not necessarily the screenwriter's job to make sure things are going to be visually appealing, I suppose, but keep it in mind, if you've just written your fourth scene in the same boring living room, go back and change some of that up. There was only one traditional dialogue scene, in which Mark and Carla converse while eating a feast of Chinese food, Carlo Rossi and Jack Daniels. That spread became the lunch for most of the crew, apart from Nina's usual snack packs. JR and Maria were spot on and charged right through that scene. One sequence called for a pathetic shirtless Mark drinking and falling asleep on the couch. JR was a little self-conscious about his fluffiness, but we'll do it for you, Frankie. Thinking it might put him at ease, I took my shirt off while directing, which only served to distract and disgust most of the people around me. After we popped off some final shots outside the apartment, which we caught at Magic Hour, it was almost 5pm. We were meant to be in Charlestown by 6.30pm. To go from Malden to the butchery in Brighton, in rush hour, shoot, and then get to Charlestown would put us way behind schedule, and everyone let me know that. I suggested that we just pop into a supermarket in Malden and get the 10 minutes of shots guerrilla style. We have small cameras, the actors compose as real shoppers, and there's no audio required, but we can even capture that wirelessly and secretly. Kyle not only hated the idea, but seemed angry at me for suggesting it, repeatedly telling me that it wasn't a good solution. I asked him and anyone else if they had a better idea. With the exception of some easy pickups after the nine days, this was our chance to wrap Maria on the entire production. Plus, I've had a difficult time nailing down a location. Let's take a risk. Kyle refused, to my disappointment, and Bonica stepped up and said she would do it, but would need to use Kyle's camera with the magic lantern loaded onto it. He obliged, and we headed a few miles down the road to stop and shop. We prepped the mics and camera in the parking lot like a hidden documentary crew. John Hunt and a few others stayed with the cars, while I walked around the supermarket, recording the audio wirelessly, while Bonica tried to shoot JR and Maria. After a while, I checked in on them, and they lured me outside to show me what they had. There was some kind of technical problem. 
Bonica wasn't shooting in raw and did something that caused the camera to lock up. Kyle fixed it quickly and we went in for round two. Nina stayed outside and heard Kyle gripe about Bonica keeping the camera safe. He was still pretty grumpy about the whole thing. Bonica invented some great shots of the two walking down the aisle, picking up the tester, checking out, etc. She was hassled by no one and even got some footage of JR and Maria talking to the real life pharmacist. To the pharmacist, they really were these characters. As we wrapped up, I saw a couple of cops walk in. I had no reason to believe that cops were flooding the supermarket to shut down our illicit art making, so I didn't think much about it. I just hoped Bonica would be extra sneaky. I started receiving texts from Jeff saying, Abort! Cops! But it amounted to nothing. We got some usable stuff of John Ryan picking out health food, footage for yet another montage, and got out. And aside from Kyle Gage. In my defense, I'll only say this. I get extremely nervous about situations where I feel like I'm actually breaking the rules. Throughout my life, I've gotten in trouble very rarely because I've known how to bend the rules that are worth bending, but never break the rules. At my core, I have an inability to let myself be vulnerable in that way. I felt like walking into a supermarket for a guerrilla-style shoot was obviously wrong, as any employee could walk up to me and kick me out. Whether that was the reality of the situation, or if the odds were so low that it's irrelevant, I didn't know. Thinking back to it now, it seems painfully obvious that I should have just shot the thing and moved on. Regardless, when you're making a movie for free with your friends who are not professionals, these things can happen. You roll with what you can. Our caravan arrived in Charlestown, beating Johnny Northrup and Mike Gowell. It was blackout now, and there was a scene that we hadn't shot at the apartment that we meant to, in which Mark yells at Carla for cheating on him. Charlestown High School was playing a massive football game at a beautifully lit stadium, and I thought it might serve its instant production value for the background of the phone call. But we wrote off the idea, since the scene's meant to take place very late at night. Instead, John Hunt and I bought some delicious pizza from a food truck at the game. Maria came up to me and had her first conversation with me, maybe ever, that wasn't directly related to the film. She wanted me to consider her for future roles, and any help I can offer her in terms of getting her website built and further feedback. For the great performance she was giving us, this was more than fair compensation. We were eventually able to meet up with the guys in the rehearsal space, which, aside from the record store, may have had the most character of all our locations. It was layered with years of music playing and friendship, with practical jokes, trinkets, ironic posters, amps, instruments, and technology old and new across the walls, floors, and ceilings. This was one of Jeff and Johnny's many gifts to this film. The new setting gave us a second win as we prepared to shoot Mark's rehearsal with his band. Johnny and company armed me with earplugs, preparing me for the volume that was to come. The night before, John Hunt, Johnny, and Jeff got into a geeky debate about the best way to record the sound for the song, but my feeling had always been that we should capture it like dialogue, not like something you would listen to on a soundtrack. It should feel like we're in the room with them, maybe playing with them, so any muddiness, which you would normally want to avoid in recording music, is actually welcome. The boys played Black Jets. A song I wasn't familiar with until that shoot, but it quickly became, in my mind, one of the major songs of the film, as I listened to that at least once a day for the following months of editing. The guys were all super worried about playing badly, but I thought they were all incredible, including Jeff, who I had never seen play drums. He told me he hadn't played in years, as he kind of turned away from music to pursue film. He also got to sport a Ramones t-shirt, satisfying his need to get that band into the film. And aside from Jeff Torelli. Playing again with Gal and Johnny made my night. 
after literally years of playing with these guys, I had stopped to do movie stuff. It had been a long time since I had been in a rehearsal space, sat down, clicked my sticks, yelling, one, two, three, four, and launched into it. I know Frankie thinks it's funny how worried I was, but I just didn't want to be bad. Not only because that was going to be in a movie forever, but I wanted the characters to be talented. I wanted Mark to be in a good band. There is so much that is loserish about the character. The music had to be something good, a different way to look at him. We fired through the song, as well as the only other scene that I wrote, in which Mark can't get commitment from his bandmates to rehearse, something I'm a bit familiar with. Johnny and Mike Gowell weren't actors, and I guess neither is Jeff, technically, but they were all awesome and natural, and when they faltered, they were easily adjusted. Jeff had reminded me a few times that we needed to be wrapped up before 10 p.m. because Mike Gowell and Johnny were dads and had limited time. While shooting the band dialogue, one of their friends needed to grab some hi-hats from the drum kit, but he kept having to come back into the room and collect more items. It felt like it was taking forever, and the fatigue from the shoot, combined with the time constraints, held me in great despair, as this poor guy I didn't know just needed his drum gear. The guys in Bonica took a smoke break, as the non-smokers stayed behind. Kyle swung from his previously deflated state to a hyperactive Bugs Bunny state, playing ridiculous dance music from his iPhone to the speakers in the space. He gleefully shouted curse words and lapsed into an awful Boston accent, like some kind of weird five-year-old who's still testing his boundaries. As people filed back in, the music and Kyle Nato only got louder, but I didn't intervene because I knew it was a buzz he didn't want me to harsh. But after another hour of shooting, we wrapped it up and headed outside to shoot the smoking-slash-cheating phone call scene. Jeff and Bonica headed home, and to my surprise, Mike Gowell and Johnny stuck around and watched us shoot, smoking and enjoying their night. Jeff had really given me the impression that they needed to be home. I later joked to Jeff that he seemed protective of his relationship to these guys, but that comment seemed to bug him. In the scene, J.R. chain-smoked in front of the street-lit Mystic River while shouting on my ancient Verizon flip phone from 2005. Mark wouldn't have anything better than a pay-by-minute phone. Despite how desperately tired we were, he nailed it, and the hardest day of the production was behind us. But the scars were not. Kyle came home with us to spend the night, as we intended to shoot in New Bedford the next morning. It would be an easy, leisurely day of walking and improvising little montage shots, and then in the evening we would shoot a comedy scene with some old friends. But when we got home, someone was stupid enough to suggest we record the podcast then and there. Stupid, because I, of course, took them up on it. Word to the wise. Don't rehash a day of stressful events on record at 2 a.m. As we reviewed the day, we came across the Stop and Shop debacle, which turned into a Jerry Springer brawl, as the tension between Kyle and I exploded. John Ryan and Nina tried to de-escalate, but the hotheads wouldn't have it. I accused him of being unable to converse reasonably, and he accused me of focusing too much on being right. He was also angry that I felt the need to rehash our issues on a public podcast, which is fair. To a third party, I imagine this podcast is an interesting, honest, and entertaining account, but to those of us involved, it's a painful memory of what wasn't fun about the otherwise amazing experience of making films with your friends.